Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. My name is Andres Lorente. I am James Rosica, and uh, as you should know by now, every episode on the Two Real Cinema Club, we look at two movies. We look at a new movie and an old movie, and then we try and draw some kind of connections between the two. And if we can't find connections, we make them up. We force them sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. You we have rise to. them out of the film can and <laughs> squish them onto the computer. And... If you're looking for us, you're not. You found us. But if you want your friends and family to find us, please check out on Twitter at Two Real Cinema Club, or I guess it's just Two Real Cinema Club at Twitter.com. Instagram is also Two Real Cinema Club at Instagram.com. The blog is Two Real Cinema Club.com. You can email us at Two Real Cinema Club at Gmail.com. I'm challenging right now. I want someone to write. To that email because <laughs> this is my domain. I do check this. This is kind of like my level of technology. And uh, <laughs> other than the Israeli porn bots who have been quiet, I have to say. We Even have... they've given up on us, haven't they? Yeah. <laughs> we, they're updating. I think they're going to. I think we scared them off. Uh, I have not really received an email. So please, someone email me. Just say hello. And say hello to your friends, but tell them also you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts, and YouTube. Jimmy, that must be a um, just an audio only. I've never seen myself on YouTube. Apparently, YouTube is like the world's biggest provider of audio streams. More people oh, listen to stuff on YouTube than they do on Spotify. That's incredible. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's a little thumbnail and uh, and like an animated sort of uh, squiggly line. Okay. So, yeah, you don't really need to watch us on YouTube. Just listen. Just, Just use both ears. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, this week we are um, looking at a couple of sci-fi films, I guess. Warriors yeah, of the th- Future, which th- is There's on... no other word to describe it, is it? Cyberpunk, I suppose, kind of sci-fi spy, cyberpunk. Right. Practically cyborg. I felt like I was living inside a computer at one point. Uh, <laughs> well, no, at many points watching both of these films. Uh, Warriors of Future, um, a 2022 release that is currently on Netflix. And we are comparing that to Ghost in the Shell from, boy, 1995, I think. 1995. It's the first time we've done like a Japanese anime movie. Is yeah. it, is it the first? No, it's not the first animated movie we've done, is it? But it's the first Japanese anime film. Yes, yes. And now let's get some terminology down before we start. Manga is, I think... A word for like a graphic novel. Yeah, exactly. Manga is like a comic book. Although I bet probably nobody, nobody uh, uh, um, younger than 45 calls them comic books anymore. Absolutely not. You are out of order. <laughs> no, it should be manga. I think is specifically like uh, Japanese animation style. And we say graphic novels now. Uh. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is, I think, yeah, our first uh, foray into... Um, Japanimation. Now that's and yeah, that's one of, that that slightly grates my gears. Japanimation. Japanimation. I think that's like a sort of portmanteau word, isn't it? That was that was Probably. created to try and sell um, anime to the Americans. So yeah. no one in the UK says Japanimation. Oh, really? It's just such a great uh, like <laughs> hyph- combo combination noun. Oh boy, <laughs> works so perfectly. Um, and then there's, do they say Japanime? No. <laughs> uh, they will now, won't they? I think you've just coined that. <laughs> no. Okay, but it's mostly anime. Anime basically refers specifically to Japanese animation, I guess. Is that yeah, yeah, okay. it, it must be, go. wasn't it? It, it must anime. be. Okay. My son goes to anime club at school, which, as Ooh. far as I can tell, is a chance to stay indoors at lunchtime while you uh, watch animation. So, um, 
So, so he should be the expert I should be asking. I right. think it's Japanese animation. Japanese animation. There you go. But the, the first film is yeah. neither Japanese nor arguably animated. That's true. Yeah, yeah. It's Warriors of Future. So um, it's, it's a Chinese, it's a Hong Kong Chinese science fiction action film. Um, it's landed on Netflix for international streaming distribution. It was for a brief time, I think, um, the highest grossing Hong Kong Chinese movie of all time. Um, out last year, directed by Ng Yen Fai, um, who it's his first feature. He previously did special effects um, on uh, Chinese films like The Warlords and The White Storm, which I have not seen. Written by Lao Hong Yo, uh, no, Lao Ho Young and Mac Tin Shu. Um, there is a whole uh, world to explore of Chinese cinema, which is um, an unknown quantity to me. It's not something that I know anything about. So this is um, yeah. this is probably a film which contains you know a lot of significant Chinese cinema stars, and I don't know any of them. Uh, sh- shall I tell you the story? There was a story. <laughs> <laughs> please, please, because I didn't see it. Um, it is 2055 in a future Hong Kong uh, called City B16, and the world is in a mess. Thanks to pollution making the air toxic, uh, the proliferation of war following the creation of military robots, and finally, a massive alien plant called Pandora, which has crash landed in the city, destroying much of it and growing every time it rains, which immediately made me think, well, good job it didn't land in Britain. It would have covered the whole country in Oof. two weeks. But there is a but. So Pandora, the alien plant, it may have flattened half of City B16, but it's also cleaning up the atmosphere. Might mean the end of pollution. So do we like it or not? But there are two big storms coming, and the authorities in City B-16 in the form of Colonel Lau and Commander Sean Lee have a plan. They're going to trace Pandora's pistil, uh, which is its central ovary for those people like me who can't remember very much school botany. And they're going to shoot it with a gene bullet that will make it stop growing, but leave it alive enough to still clean the air. And they trust top soldier Tyler played by Louis Koo, and his friend Johnson, played by Sean Lau, to do the job, along with a hand-picked squad. They only have a matter of hours to succeed, though, and if they fail, the plant must be destroyed with bombs before the second storm hits, killing it outright, but also killing an estimated 160,000 civilians. So, can Tyler and Johnson complete the mission, or will the combination of aggressive plants alien creatures, rogue robots and collapsing buildings bring their gardening days to a premature <laughs> end. <laughs> so like, so there, there was a story. See, I, I told you there was a story. There is a story. You did a great job. You, can we call the cliche squad, please? I tell you what, I, I got some initial thoughts before we ring the spoiler bell. And my first thought is, <laughs> I know I, I chose the movies this week and I will uh, happily admit this week, this is not a writer's film. No. no. Um, it, it's kind of, you know, it's a film about uh, action. It's like sci-fi action. It's got you know, incredible CGI. It often left me asking um, which parts of the film were 
built in the real world, which mm. were just all made on a computer in post-production. I think the quality of the CGI is pretty spectacular. But you know, that is the movie and the characters and the, their development are clearly secondary. They, they also, yeah, they also have American names. This was Connor and Tyler and Jason. Sean, I guess, could be um, a Hong Kong Chinese name as well. But um, yeah, a lot of American names felt like Dr. Strangelove because, of course, um, the general. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it has you know, a bad guy in a wheelchair. Absolutely. Well, you followed the story a lot better than I did. I mean, I think... There's not a whole lot of story. It's basically that they have to go out and take care of this plant one way or another. I love the fact that you consider it gardening. It's on a, on a cosmic level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and my botany is not that strong either, but I couldn't really follow them clearly to a pistol. It was just, I never saw the pistol. I mean, I, and I should look at, I did look at plants a little bit. The pistol seems to be the part where the uh, the flower itself was sort of like a maw, just gasping at people and trying to destroy ships and people and all that. Um but the pistol was right there, and then they're going somewhere else entirely for the pistol. I was just lost in in the, in the the atmosphere of the whole world. You know, it gets set up pretty early. It's obviously super dystopian. This is a really nightmarish future. Um, but just when they're looking for the pistol, these lizard roaches come out. What were the lizard roaches? <laughs> and why don't the lizard roaches just go eat all the unarmed civilians? Instead, they go after the guys with the guns. It seems like a proper lizard roach would go out and just eat people on the street. I mean, I was guessing the lizard roaches were something like, you know, aphids that you get in the garden where they all they all sort of gather underneath the leaves to try and stay out of stay out of sight. Okay, and everything else is bigger because Pandora is enormous. Is that it? Sounds perfectly logical. I tell you, I tell you what, this this film, it reminded me of back when I used to do stand up. There was a guy who did um, stand up on the same kind of circuit as me called John Ryan. And his, he yeah. gave me this great advice on comedy, um, which was he said, you know, when you go on stage, be like the local council. Because um, he was saying what everybody wants the local council to do is they want them to collect yeah. the bins and make sure the streetlights work. Um, so he was kind of saying the people want the basics. So, you know, when you go out and do your set, just make sure you've got mm. some basic, simple jokes that everyone can understand. You know, just do the things that have to be done. And anything fancy you can layer on top, but make yeah. sure you like the council and do the basics. And I think... Um, for all that this is not a writer's film, you know what? I think it does the basics a lot better than some other films that we have seen lately. Sometimes I find myself pining for like the really straightforward yeah. action pictures of the 1980s. Movies where it was kind of very clear who the protagonist was, who the antagonist was, you know, what it was that yeah. they wanted and what you had to do to stop them. Um, you know, things were laid out you know, very simply and then you could enjoy the journey. Um, and, Recently, I've been asking myself, well, why don't they make films in that genre anymore? Because they kind of don't anymore. If there is an action film, often they're kind of very complicated and maybe a little bit ironic and they have very many layers. And I think the answer is that those kind of very straightforward action pictures of the 1980s are still made, but they're not made in the English language. Mm. So they're made in you know, Hong Kong and they're made in Thailand and they're made in South America. And there's you know, lots of people who are making relatively low yeah. budget yeah. straightforward action pictures um, and this is an example of it i think this the film does really clearly economically explain the problem and the stakes and it tells you who the protagonists are in a way that you can understand very simply it shows you that there's a deadline it shows you why there's a deadline nothing is arbitrary and nothing is a coincidence at no point did i ever have to ask myself yeah. well who's that guy why are they doing this what are they doing um 
you know, maybe a lot of it is telegraphed, but um, it's hard to get lost. You know, they set out very clearly what's going on without using too many words or too many scenes to tell you. And that's you know, a lot of films can't really achieve that anymore. I wish there was a bit more of that yeah. in Cocaine Bear, frankly. I will say that I think uh, in the hands of a typical American action movie maker, this would have been well over two hours. And I will say one thing <laughs> that this film has going for it, and it really, in my mind, doesn't have much going for it. Um, it only gets to feature length be due to having about eight minutes of credits at the end of the film. <laughs> that takes it up to feature length. Um, so it is mercifully short, I will say that. Um, I think it clocks in probably like an hour and 24 minutes or something like that and then gets over. That's, and, that's the correct That's the correct length for an awful lot of films in my yeah, book. Yeah, so I think, uh, and I, I do agree with you that we're not making too many of the, like a classic action film um, in the US anymore. So I think you've got a good point there. Um, I think... For me, the irony of all action is that ultimately it's not very exciting. It's like each action sequence is competing against itself and there are no lulls to actually make the action seem uh, ah. more intriguing, more engaging, more exciting. Um, and in this film, I, I felt like like my I could feel my brain just sort of going to sleep. And this happens to me in a lot <laughs> of the big action films. Um, because there's just no thinking or feeling beyond the brainstem or the amygdala. There was no cortex activity for me. It was just so. Yeah, I think there's. It's simply laid out, but it's really just too simple. And then you're just engulfed in action for a lot of the film. I mean, probably 60 minutes of the film is. Um, people in life or death circumstances and a lot of gunfire and a lot of crashes and things like that. So for me, it's just not interesting. I can't, I couldn't relate to the, the characters at all. Um, there's a lot of caricature stuff going on. We've got to call the cliche squad as soon as possible, I think. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard for me. I mean, I'm, I'm an old cranky guy. I'm turning 55 and I'm, I'm just not sure I have enough life left in me to endure films like this uh, on a regular basis. <laughs> so, at least it wasn't three hours. At least it was exactly, an hour yeah, and 24. The, yeah, the, in compared to the, the, the James Cameron week that we put in some some Oof. some weeks back, um, this was this was easy on the eyes and easy on the brain. But maybe that was the thing. It was just too easy on the brain. It didn't have me thinking. There were a couple of great ideas in there, I think, where you've got this potential uh, environmental nightmare actually having a, a bright side and actually possibly helping clean up the environment a little bit. I thought that was a pretty good, interesting idea. Um, the, 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 like the general and his representation of the Skynet investors or the Skynet business seeing in this whole opportunity of disaster, a way to make money again, a nice idea. Um, but I didn't see many solutions. I didn't see many new ideas. It felt very much, uh, like a Pat kind of, uh, action film without much nuance, but I, I shouldn't have expected much more than that. I think there are plenty of solutions in this film, but all of them involve firing high-velocity bullets at something. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, let's, let's, let's ring the, we'll ring the spoiler bell. Yes. Um, and, and talk about kind of... I mean, I, you're exactly right. There isn't a great deal to spoil. You could guess most of it from the, from the trailer, but let's, let's ring it anyway, because yeah. I like the sound. Yeah, yeah. Here it is. So, I mean, I, I'm going to... I'm gonna, um, challenge you slightly i think there is a tiny amount of character development um in the film insofar as there's this kind of extra guy in the squad skunk who's like an old colleague of tyler and johnson yeah he was discharged for abandoning the squad on an earlier mission and now they bring him back and he kind of he has a little bit of um character development insofar as he starts out as a bit of a waster mm -hmm. um, and he has to um he has has some internal struggle to decide whether he's going to run away and save his skin or 
stick around um, with the rest of the squad. That's about the limit of the character development. So I don't think you can say there is none, but there is like 1% okay. character development. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He, he had a sort of a, a bone to pick with the general too, is that he felt like the general was setting up all of his mates for a certain death. And he left the military or left service for that reason. He felt like he had been abandoned by the higher ups. I wasn't entirely sure why they had to have him. Like, why was he the chosen one to come back and be the driver on this crucial mission? And I was surprised that there really wasn't any driver already provided for them. <laughs> so there were just some holes. Yeah, you know, you reunited the three amigos to yeah. this one last job kind of thing. Um, but um, wasn't quite sure why he was the man. I mean, it was a great kind of quite telling character moment in the film which i think which says a lot about the way the film treats his characters so like halfway through the movie there's a long scene in a hospital um and towards the end of that scene you know tyler is running out of ammo and he's about to be overwhelmed by these kind of you know, enormous cockroaches yeah um it looks like everything is lost and then his buddy johnson like suddenly turns up out of the blue he's wearing his full armor he's got his guns blazing he whips in he saves the day um, and the two men make absolutely no comment whatsoever. They, you don't even get a, wow, you made it. I didn't know you were coming. You know, incredible. You saved my life. Or there's absolutely nothing. It's yeah. just they kind of, you know, they barely make eye contact and they say, all right, let's get on with the mission. Um, and that's you know kind of how the film treats the characters all the way through, that they're not allowed, to, you know, not allowed the buddy moments that maybe you would see in a Western version of this film. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe they would argue those buddy moments kind of slow things down. They've got a tight deadline and they can't afford to get all chummy. They need to hurry up and shoot more bad guys. But um, I think maybe it shows how much the film prizes action over character. Yeah. I would, I think we should talk about this at depth in both of these films. There's something there's a dehumanization thing going on here, and I think the future for so many sci-fi folks, and probably rightly so, is that human life sort of has less and less value. Um, and I think that happens here, and you're right, the characters are less less interesting, I guess, um, and uh, their character, their, their, there's a lot of backstory in here, a lot of flashbacks, which I think are unnecessary, but there's a lot, lot much less depth to the characters, and I wonder if in part it's... Uh, cultural as well, because I think, you know, uh, non-Western societies tend to be a bit more collectivist than individualist. So for us, we're, as Western viewers, we're expecting deep characters who really have intriguing stories and they're really independent, whereas, you know, this is like a buddy film to save the world, to save more people. There's a sort of a collective spirit to it. Um, so it's really odd to couple this this dehumanization of, uh, of just an awful, you know, f- dystopian future with this uh, collectivist attitude. And um, I like it. I mean, obviously, the, to, to avoid these futures, we've got to be more collectivist in our action. But I think that might explain um, the lack of character development because it's the I think the the whole is more meaningful uh, than the individual. Yeah, I mean the. I I was kind of thinking like the the things that are the baddies in the film mm-hmm. they seem like kind of very modern Chinese like you know the the it's air pollution mm-hmm. it's like you know like it's almost kind of like the number one non person baddie yeah. you wouldn't see air pollution um, being you know get top billing as the major threat yeah. against humanity in a Western film but yeah. clearly this is something right at the front of the minds yeah. of many people in China so you know, they're worried about air pollution they're worried about aliens. And then kind of they're worried about profiteering corruption. Yeah. These are like the three um, bad 
actors of the film. Whereas on, on the other hand, technology is kind of fetishized. Weapons are fetishized. Yes. Militarism is good. Yes. Although kind of unchecked military robots are bad. I mean, they're kind of basically they're saying it's okay to blow stuff up. I mean, you know, lots of films say this. It's all right to blow stuff up as long as it's the right people doing the blowing up. Yeah. I mean, they uh, it does say it suggests that families are good, or at least kind of suggests that children. You know, it's good to protect children. Mm-hmm. And and there is a kind of sort of brothers in arms family um, feeling about the main characters, although they're not terribly demonstrative. Yeah. Um, and also, I quite like this notion that yeah, I mean, this is playing straight into the Facebook conspiracy theory favourites. But um, the film does seem to suggest that uh, releasing a lab-created virus into the world is a reasonable way to solve big problems. (laughs) (laughs) So the film began production in 2017. I looked it up. So very long before the COVID pandemic, the film, the script was completely finished. So I don't think it's any way a comment on that, but it's a a cute post-COVID irony that this is the solution to their problems. Yeah. And there, there, as I said, I think there are a couple of good ideas in there that need to be teased out of what I think, ugh, I'll say it generously, I think is a mediocre film, um, <laughs> teases those out. So, I mean, they're in there, they're in there, and I think you have to be a good viewer to really to suck a lot of that out, but uh, it's embedded. And those are like very either prescient if they were really 2017 or very um, current, very relevant um, themes for today. I mean, I think if if we were given this script and told, oh, you know, can you polish this up? I think the basic underlying story could be turned into, you know, something which is great fun. I think the you know the premise could really be made to work. It's all about character work, isn't it? I think is what's missing. It's just character work. Yeah, probably. And I think a lot of the a lot of the characterization comes from just caricatures and cliches. For me, I felt like I was watching a video game. It's I, I don't do really yeah. well with these films anyway. It doesn't feel like filmmaking. So for me, I, to turn it into a, like a proper film, I think that would be really hard for me to do on the page. Um, and it's it's just hard for me to relate to something that's so artificial. Um, and that might have something to do with where we're headed. I think we're headed into an increasingly artificial world, and it might be hard to um, create like valid valid feelings in 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 scripts and things because we're just going to be so tech, technologically dependent i guess uh well you did mention cliches shall we oh. shall we find the squad then oh god please they should have come 20 minutes ago okay i'll let, I'll let you have first crack <laughs> What's what's in the sights of the cliche squad? Well, would, I mean, I think this was already done. It was already panned thirty and fifty years ago by Strange Love and Austin Powers. But I think we've already mentioned the wounded general or former hero in a wheelchair. Where baddie in a wheelchair? And he even has a a leather glove too. I think. Right? I mean, come on, <laughs> that was low. That was easy. Um, but I think um, hang, hanging jewelry or something to remind the hero of someone in the past oh, or a lost yeah. loved one. We've seen that a bunch. There's a stuffed wow, animal. that yeah, that's just such an easy shorthand, yeah. isn't it? Stuffed animal does the same thing. Um, how about the hard as nails military guys who they really respect each other, but they also sort of detest one another. <laughs> I thought that was in there. Um, Boy, picking up a stand-in daughter for the lost daughter for yeah. to motivate the protagonist, give him a reason to live. 
Yeah, exactly. It's like mourning parent given given a chance to undo their child's death by saving a different child. Exactly. Um, absolutely. It's something we've seen 200 times. I like this notion as well of like tough woman in a beret, isn't it? It's like you can't characterize her in any way. Just just give her a beret. And then, yeah, that, that and she's tough now. Yeah, yeah, that's how it works. I, it's funny because I don't think of a beret as being a tough hat, but um, <laughs> I guess they, we have the green berets and various militaries do we use the beret. Um, the one that we see in both films this week, uh, the unmagic bullets that just seem to miss everyone despite the fact that we're in 21st century high-tech <laughs> militarism. Um, militarism. Um, and also the, um, the, the last-minute saviour, um, you know, where all is lost and yet, you know, the, the buddy turns up at the last minute to, to oh, yeah. scoop you up. And yeah. The reason I especially, I mean, it's well used, but they, they do this twice with the same character in basically right. the same situation in this film, don't they? Yeah. So they were so pleased with it the first time. We'll just write that same bit again. Yeah. It's almost like an intern went to photocopy the script and accidentally messed up the pages. And there's two versions of page 49 somehow leafed into the yeah. script. And isn't it that I know on at least one of those occasions he's presumed dead. Mm. So that's obviously kind of a cliche in itself, the the buddy who's presumed dead but comes back at the last moment to save the day. I think, uh, I'm sorry to say, I for all its video game-ish um, uh, frippery, I kind of enjoy sitting down and watching this in front of the telly today, actually. Okay. Um, you know, Part of the film feels like a tribute act to other movies, and yeah, it's oh yeah. certainly in part a tribute act to the second film we're going to watch, which is Ghost in the Shell. But also, there's like you know, there's a bit of Iron Man in there, isn't it? And there's a bit of Captain America, and there's you know a whole bunch of movies that are quoted from. Mm. Um, and it almost felt a little bit like um, like you know collecting stickers mm. or whatever that I could you know put a little sticker in the book for Iron Man, a little sticker in the book for another another Marvel character. Um, ticking, ticking them off a list. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> mercifully short. Um, yeah. Remarkable looking. Um, and I, I agree with you. This is probably a little bit of a preview of the direction that cinema is heading in, whether we like it or not. Yeah. Um, do you want to go for a break? Um, and we'll try and kind of uh, recover some of our love for cinema and then we'll come back and, and talk about a completely different film about big guns. Uh, let's have a break. We'll come back and talk about Ghost in the Ship. Pacino Dino Rente. Dino is a good boy. <laughs> Dino is a pit bull terrier or an American Staffordshire terrier I'm living with my sister and brother-in-law as a hospice dog. Oh, That's a foster hospice dog. Oh, yeah. you're going to break my heart here now. Do you, do, what do you call the pit bull terrier in England? Is it a Staffordshire terrier? Or an American Staffordshire? Would you call it an American Staffordshire Terrier? We have we have Staffordshire Terriers. Yeah, okay. I'm not super good on dog breeds. Okay, so the pit bull is here. It's sadly it's associated with fighting dogs because I think a lot of um, vicious owners will fight their pit bull terriers. Um, but it's associated with with rap videos in my mind. Yeah, yes, exactly. But they are awesome dogs. I've lived and known, uh, lived with and known two very well, and they're just fantastic. They just have these very stable personalities. If you treat them to be or train them to be mean, they're going to be mean and fighters if <laughs> you want that. But if you just want a love puppy, you can get the best love puppy ever. 
But, Jimmy, Dino suffers from a congenital kidney condition, so he doesn't have a good long-term prognosis. All the same, Dino is living his best life. He's really the ideal dog, and he's going to have a great life while he can. Dino is the kind of dog that pulls hard and strong on a leash when on a walk. He's charging forcefully into the future, as short as it might be. He pees everywhere because he knows he he doesn't have long to leave his mark on the world. (laughs) Sometimes he might even pee on another dog's head. (laughs) You know, something for them to remember him by. He does some. He does have some of those funny little poos that any good dog owner is quick to pick up. But as hard as he pulls outside, he chills just as hard inside when among family. He likes to lie by the fire and receive endless kisses and loving. As I said, he's the perfect dog. But I'm sorry to say, you can't have Dino. He's already <laughs> spoken for. But you can help future Dinos by supporting organizations such as your local animal shelters, um, societies for the prevention of cruelty to animals, veterinarians who spay and neuter dogs and cats, animal welfare groups, and animal rescue leagues. Support them financially by volunteering, by adopting animals, or fostering them until they are adopted. Mahatma Gandhi was quoted as saying, the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated. Mm. Mm -hmm. Dina was wandering alone in poor health before he was taken to a shelter. Now he is healing and bringing happiness to his new extended family. Wouldn't you love to have a dog or cat like Dino in your life? Remember, you can't have Dino. He's already spoken for. Dino, Dino, Sal, Dino, Pibolino, Primo, Dino, Pupacino, Dino, Rente. I'm not going to pour one out for Dino, because I think that's what Dino would like. We are back. I'm still thinking about Dino. We, we So now we're going to talk about uh, the other half of this dystopian future. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, Japanese film Ghost in the Shell, the original Ghost in the Shell. This film has been kind of remade a few years ago with Scarlett Johansson in a live action film. There are, I think, two sequels to this film. There are at least two or three television series. There is the original uh, graphic novel manga. Um, but this is the the film from 1995, directed by Mamoru Oshii. Mm-hmm. Written by Kazunori Ito, based on manga by Shirao Masamune. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, my manga was first published in, I looked it up, 1989 to 1991. Wow, okay. um, and I haven't read the manga. Apparently the manga is considerably more sexualized than the film turned out. Oh, is that possible? It's pretty sexual. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen the Scarlett Johansson, but I got this DVD from the library. They gave me the wrong version. <gasps> so I started it up 
Yeah, I started up in the machine, and sure enough, it was Scarlett Johansson being birthed from the liquid the way that um, mm. Kasunagi is in. Uh, it's actually not Kasunagi who gets birthed, I don't think, in the film, but we can talk about that. Or Well, we, we'll have to discuss that, won't yeah. we? Yeah. Um, but then I realized, oh, I'm watching the wrong one. But it was kind of <laughs> useful to see the first few minutes because the first few minutes of the 1995 version are similar. So obviously they borrowed um, extensively from the original. But why? Why are we watching this one with ghost? Uh, what's the other called? Fe- Warriors of Future. <laughs> Do you have any other questions for me, Council? So, well, so um, the reason I, because I'm the I'm the one responsible for choosing this movie for this week, and it's mainly because Netflix flicked the trailer for Warriors of Future at me, and in the trailer for that movie, there is a direct quote. From Ghost in the Shell, there is a shot of um, uh, the main character in Warriors of Future, Tyler, I think, uh, trying to tear open the the roof of the tank that Mm. sieges them at the end of the movie. And, you know, it's very clear that the makers are saying, look, our film is like Ghost in the Shell, Mm. uh, which kind of made me want to kind of reflect back and look at this movie. This uh, this movie is, is one of the films in my vast and ever-growing top 10. I really love Ghost in the Shell. I um, originally watched it uh, like the most 90s way possible. It was released in 1995 and I first watched it. I borrowed the DVD from Mm. the the video library and I watched it on my Bondi Blue iMac, which is the most 90s computer of all time. Oh, yeah. Um, Those were beautiful. Beautiful machines. uh, Yeah, absolutely. We still ended up in a roof somewhere. And uh, the the first time I watched it, I watched it in the wrong aspect ratio because back then, I think on the Mac, you could it didn't automatically default to the correct aspect ratio. So I watched the film and everybody was extremely tall and thin. And I got to the very end credits and then realized, hey, wait a second. (laughs) This writing is a bit thin. Have I watched this film in the wrong aspect ratio? And I went back and I watched the entire film uh, again immediately in the correct aspect ratio. Okay. Um, and I've probably seen it uh, five or six, six Ooh. or seven times since. Oh. Um, I was a little bit worried going back to it because um, I haven't seen it for probably 15 years or so. Yeah. And I was, you always have that worry. That, oh, no, is a film from the 90s going to look really clunky and terrible? Yeah. And I know that you had never seen it. So yeah. um, why don't you I'll – let, I'll let you kind of do the synopsis. Yep. And, and we'll talk a little bit about it. And I'll, I'll tell you whether it's still as good – today in my eyes as it was back when i watched it on that imac Ooh, this is a challenge well my review is probably going to lean a little too not as good as it was in the day but <laughs> i'm hoping i'm not crushing your childhood dreams and your nostalgia <laughs> Uh, Major kasunagi is a cyborg police agent in a very bleak and dystopic Tourist, uh, I guess it's an Asian city peopled by oddly mostly white North Americans. It seems it's, <laughs> that was confusing. Uh, it's set in 2029. I saw yeah, it on the back that, of the DVD right. box. Yeah, yeah 2029. So, it's so, so we've only got six years to go. <laughs> um, in the opening scene, she assassinates a U.S. businessman, um, and she seems to be experiencing some interference in her communication system when she's not plugged deck directly into the network. It was. A lot of communication that happens when they're on network and off network, um, but it was her ghost 
I think, who was speaking to her or some sort of ghost in the system. Um, and a ghost appears to be the, the human remains of the life form inside her shell. So she's got some remnants of a human inside her um, new cyborg uh, shell or body. Um, the opening credits, as I alluded to a little bit when we were talking about the Scarlett Johansson film, um, shows us this, it's pretty impressive, this birth of a cyborg from a fluid tank, and it's some sort of techno-alchemy that's going on that creates the ultimate um, cyborg. And I have to say, this is some of the strangest animation I've ever seen because um, this film is incredibly, like, inexcusably talky while being <laughs> equally and incredibly minimally visually, and that's a lot of adverbs that I just used, but there's not <laughs> a lot of happening. There's not a lot of visual storytelling, uh, even though with animation you've got, you know, the reins. You can do whatever you want with the, the images, um, but there's lots of talking. Um, so for me, it hit from the outset, it's sort of committing this double cardinal sin um, of having characters tell you exactly what is happening and what they are thinking while the story should actually be taking place. So I did find that hard. Um, feels like a real information age film at the beginning of the information, mm, information, yeah. information age, because it's 1995, uh, but as you said, appears to be set in 2029. I didn't get that out of the film itself. I got that, I think, out of the trailer it said in 2029, right. yeah. Yeah. So as a result, I sort of found myself just trying to process any bit of what they were telling me and, and not showing me that it, you know, I kind of ultimately understood nearly nothing, but I don't think you have to understand a whole lot what was going on, but... Um, there's a plan to expel this ne'er-do-well, um, appropriately but not imaginatively named Colonel Malice, um, <laughs> who really has very little or no further part in the film, but he's mm. uh, someone that they need to export, I guess, or um, expel from the country. Um, there's a hacker at large named the Puppet Master, who is interfacing with the network that includes all the uh, cyborgs who work on it, and um, he sort of is outed as being hostile because he's harmed a one of the ministers of, I think, information or foreign affairs um, uh, interpreter. And Kasunagi and her cohorts, cohorts are cops who can sort of occasionally talk without speaking by using the network, which becomes confusing because you have no idea if people are talking or just thinking for me. <laughs> that happened a little bit. Um, the voiceover acting... Is not good. It's kind of terrible. Uh, <laughs> they're not getting A-list actors, so it's it's and it's not helped by the pe the pages and pages of speech that the actors have to discharge. So, um, it's no, I, a, I watched it in the Japanese. Did you watch it? The, did you watch it in English dub? I watched it English dub. Yeah. Ah, I don't right, think okay. that I don't think that option was on my DVD. It was cool. Yeah. Okay, right. I, I looked around in the menu a little bit. There were a couple things: trailer and then making of and. I didn't see the language thing, so I probably should have heard it in Japanese. But um, if all of that is in Japanese, it's a, it's a lot of information. There's just a lot of talking, and I think maybe that that may have talking. tainted my experience a little bit because they they seem to have translated everything. Whereas usually, if you're doing a subtitling or a dubbing, you sort of cut it down a little bit. But uh, there are a lot I'll of tell you what, if, yeah, if, if yeah. people can talk without moving their lips using kind of network telepathy, yeah. it does save a lot on the animation budget because you can just <laughs> have people right. keep their faces still while they talk. Brilliant. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And there are there are a lot of still scenes in in this film, so it's it's you know it's it, it's it's odd because it works on this contemplative level of just have giving you images to to enjoy, um, but at the same time, there's a lot of talking or, or thinking, uh, audible thinking, I guess that happens. Um, um, we get lots of backstory, um, and it's as, as I said about the last film, it's only 80 minutes. I think it gets to that point again with some credits. It might be 83, 84, 82 minutes, I think is what it was. Um, so it's short. Um, there's 
to kind of give you an idea, there was this one scene, I, I hope you remember, where two cyborgs, uh, including um, what her name is, again, Katsunagi, um, and her um, sort of uh, partner cop, um, they talk about, they, they explain to each other how they can get drunk <laughs> in the film on a boat. She's just gone for this dive. <laughs> yes. And they go into very clear detail about how the, the operations in their cyborg bodies allow them to get drunk. And it just seemed totally unnecessary. Um, <laughs> and that was, it kind of just stands, it says a lot about the film, I think, um, where time is kind of just wasted on unnecessary details. And and the storytelling wasn't really clear. It's much more like you're really just getting lots of information and, and then um, you're hearing all this on the backdrop over the of um, the animation. Um, but eventually the AI sort of begin to realize who they are. All of them are, are part human, and the puppet master seems to be getting closer and closer to them. So he has his eyes on the cyborgs, I believe. Um, the one great moment for me in both or either of these two films is this midpoint montage, which does really nothing to advance the story, but it's a long sequence of story build, story world building, and I thought it was great. Um, we see this polluted... Um, city with crowded canals of with sewage in them, and it's sort of used as this new transport system, like post sea level rise. I really yeah. liked. I really liked this touch because, just imagine your city streets today, but underwater with all the pollution that you see on the streets. And then it looked like the 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 people, the governments had sort of, um, sort of re-engineered, retro-engineered the streetways into these canals where these boats were traveling. Um, and it just does this a great job of painting a very bleak picture of the future, but I felt like it should have come earlier. And it you know it doesn't do enough to to save this film for me, but it's it's one of the best like dystopian sequences. It's a couple of minutes long too, so it's not short, and it just sort of comes right at the midpoint and eases into the to the next um, uh, bits of action of the film. There's, uh, there's a great kind of I think uh, what for me is a really magical moment during that montage that kind of set piece which is that um kusanagi is um she's kind of yeah sort of mooching around in the city on this boat and then she sees up in one of the office buildings somebody who looks exactly like her okay yeah and they kind of they sort of make eye contact and then the boat moves on and it's just sort of um reflecting her paranoia about whether she's a real person or not maybe she's a clone of somebody else yeah it's uh, i thought that was you know like a really lovely moment yeah it's very cleverly orchestrated. Yeah. I, yeah, it is a beautiful sequence. I think that sequence is great. And that's um, really is, I think is the best thing I saw this week. <laughs> um, and oddly, this feels like a kid film. Like it, It's not unlike Speed Racer, which I loved as a child, but it's very unlike Speed Racer. Um, so it felt like it's almost pitched towards that, the manga um, of a graphic novel sort of thing. Uh, but it sort of goes way above the heads of kids. Um even though the plot is sort of spelled out constantly through dialogue, but it's kind of confusing given the, the the length of the film and the simplicity of the story. It's also there's just so many actors um, with different motivations and things that we're just hearing and not seeing, I guess. Um, the puppet master is eventually tracked down. Kasunagi must retrieve or destroy it. Um, and that's exactly what the puppet master wants because uh, there's sort of this double singularity. I love that term, double singularity. Um, is that possible? I, I think it is. I'm going to try and make it possible. Uh, the two AIs or cyborgs need to merge in order to survive and procreate and sort of new, uh, you know, new cy- give birth to new semi-pure cyborgs, I guess, cyborgs, I guess. <laughs> so I think, it is a, I think it is kind of these are two, not a human merging in a singularity with um, 
a technology, but these two part human, part technology things coming together. So I'm calling that a double singularity. Um, the climax happens in this museum where the puppet master has just riddled the place with bullets and sort of destroys these murals of a tree of life and dinosaurs, which seems to be telling us something profound or metaphorical, like this, the past is definitely past. This is the future world. You can't avoid it. Um, and uh, yes, indeed, there are lots of nipples in this picture. <laughs> Yeah, there are a lot of boobs in this film. There's, there's a lot more even than I remember. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just that. It's also that Kasunagi, every time she needs to, every, she, every time she's going into an action scene, she seems to lose her clothes. Like she has to be naked uh, in order to, I don't know, get streamlined like a swimmer and move more swiftly. I don't know why. They... I think it's, I don't understand the rules because she has this optical camouflage, yeah. which makes her effectively be... invisible. Yeah. But other characters also have optical camouflage and it seems to be like a cloak that they put on. Yeah, exactly. Or it's something that surrounds you know, the tank towards the end of the film, whereas hers only works if she takes her clothes off. Oh, <laughs> um, so, uh, I, I mean, you know, clearly... Mamoru Oshii, you know, he likes boobs. Yeah. He likes cars. He likes guns. And I was yes. imagining if he could have put boobs on the tank at the end of the film, you know, he yeah. would have been really satisfied <laughs> with that. That's, that would be great. That would have been the, tri- the triple singularity or the... <laughs> but, but that's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Cause, I mean, okay, it, it is clearly, you know, someone has decided teenage boys will probably come and see this film yeah. if we put boobs in it. Let's yeah. put boobs in it. Oh, but oh. It's, what's interesting, I think, is I think... There is potentially a kind of feminist reading of this, that Mm -hmm. there's something about Kusanagi being, um, you know, being a woman. um, Once she removes the accoutrements of of kind of modern femininity, she then becomes invisible. There's something about women being seen or not seen. I think you could possibly interpret that way. Alternatively, boobs. But um, interestingly, the other characters of the film do not sexualize her at all. It's only the camera that sub sexualizes yeah, her, and that's true. Um, whereas you know, all the other char- characters are constantly you know giving her a jacket to cover herself back up in, or looking the other way while she gets changed. Yeah. Well, is there cyborg sex? I guess. I mean, maybe they don't have um, feelings of sexuality or attraction if they're artificial <sighs> intelligence. Yeah, it's a good good but point. Then we... But then, you know, is is Kusanagi a person or not yeah. does she have a human brain inside a, a robot body or is she just all robot yeah. i mean that's one of the central questions of the films yeah. that's like one of my favorite themes of all cinema this notion of you know, questioning your identity of self-doubt existential mm-hmm. crisis it's like a i wrote in my notes it's like a really 90s kind of feeling film not just the fact yeah. that it's you know, i watched the dvd on an imac but it's yeah. It, it like fits in with Total Recall and Fight Club and Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive and a big spate of films all from around that period, yeah. which were all asking these same questions in a kind of a sort of fantasy club ennui. It was like this period when um, everything was up for question and um, nothing was very clear. And then that period suddenly came to an end with 9-11 in 2001 and suddenly yeah. kind of your know, questions of identity um, were thrown under the bus um, and people decided very quickly who they were and what they wanted again. Um, so it's like a, it's sort of like a throwback to an era when this was, you know, an important point when there was a whole societal existential crisis. Mm. And we kind of don't have that anymore. It's uh, interesting. You were talking about um, the ghost of the title as well, because yeah. uh, and the film sort of invents this notion of a ghost 
because I'm still not having seen the film like seven times. I'm still mm. not entirely sure what a ghost is. Yeah, it's sort of the same as the as the soul, I think. But there's no religious connotation, and they keep it deliberately ambiguous. And I think some of the characters use the word soul as well. So you think, okay, so a ghost is not a soul. It's like something which indefinably turns you into a a person rather yeah. than a machine. And at one point, I had to play one scene back a couple of times because I thought he said um, her partner said ghost hat or ghost head. I wasn't <laughs> sure if it was. Like part of the, like he was referring to sort of like the, the inner workings or the soul perhaps as being humid, but using the term ghost hat. I think it was ghost hack. Uh, so I think it's ghost hack. Hack. Oh, ghost hack. H-A-C-K. Yeah, so the idea is that somebody has hacked into your soul. Oh. Um, which, is, which is a kind of fascinating, interesting science fictional idea. I kind of love this idea. And it is... You know, maybe it's, you know, something that people would only talk about after they've had a little bit too much dope at one o'clock in the morning. But <laughs> yeah. this notion of trying to define, well, what is it that makes you a person? Yeah. And, and um, you know, I think we might talk about this at the popcorn counter later on. But mm-hmm. um, uh, at some point, people might start asking, people are already asking at the moment, well, is the AI that we can recreate today or the AI that we can create tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Um you know, should we be treating it as a person? Is it self-aware? Yep. A little bit difficult to be sure. A little bit difficult to know how to test it. Mm-hmm. But that's that's a topic for another day. I think there are some great sequences and some great set pieces in this film. And I'm going to slightly dispute your notion that there isn't um, enough action storytelling because there are at least a couple of sequences which do eloquently tell a story purely through action and not with words. There is a lot of talking, but there's the set piece where they chase the hacker through the, the kind of the um, the deserted city, yep. and then there is the set piece with the fight against the tank at the end, where I think um, these are largely sequences driven by action, where we don't have a great deal of narrative, and you can tell what's going on mm. just by being shown a series of pictures. Yep. Um, is the tank puppet master though? It's a sort of a transformer moment, isn't he? He pops out of a, a car that he's been driving in. Yeah, I I don't think so. I think that I mean the the plot is deliberately quite obscure in this film. So I think the notion is that the puppet master is a computer program that's been made by Section Nine, who are one mm-hmm. of the or Section Six, is it? But one of the rival branches of government, and then it's got loose, and they're trying to control it. Um, and uh, so they think they've tricked the puppet master into climbing into a cyborg body, which they then scoop up and run away with. The intention being they're going to take it abroad or to the States or something like that. Um, and presumably, after they do this this heist to steal this sort of semi-functioning robot body that contains the puppet master, they take it to this abandoned museum where it's going to be then picked up by a helicopter shortly and it's being protected by a tank in the meantime. Mm. So I think that is Section 6's tank. Okay. Um, I think it's two different branches of government who are fighting out here. Okay. Um, And Kusanagi wants to um, get it on with the puppet master. So she has to fight the tank to get it out of the way so that she can do her electro business with it. Do you think... I, th- I so, think that's how the story works. So was that a motivation for her earlier? Was that she wanted to meet the puppet master? Because she seemed quite... Uh, in that sort of culmination scene where half of her body is next to half of the puppet master's body or what whatever the puppet master is occupying at that time, um, it seems like it's news to her. Like she didn't... And I say she, we do. It didn't want to... Um, uh, 
meet with the puppet master or become one with the puppet master. That didn't seem like that was in the cards for her earlier on. It seemed like it just I, I think moment. when they have the scene where the the kind of the um, cyborg body is brought in at about the midpoint after mm-hmm. this sequence with the, the canals, yeah. um, she insists to everybody else in section nine um, that uh, she's going to be the one who's going to dive into this cyborg body. So I think even then she has this notion that she wants to interface with the puppet master before anybody else. Okay. Because I think she is aware that the puppet master has already been talking to her yeah. through the network or something like that. It's been sort of it's been haunting the back of her mind for yeah, some time. That's what I heard. I think that there. is the idea. Yep. But I don't think that's obvious on a first viewing or a second or a third. I think there's quite a lot of under the hood storytelling that you have to kind of infer, which mm-hmm. is funny for a film that has so much talking in yes. it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. There's something else I want I want to ask yeah, you about, which I, uh, and you know, maybe you can see it. Or maybe I've made it up. I think there is another bit of story which is, which is uh, hidden but exists. Which is, I think there is a hidden love story in this film. I, you know, having seen the film seven times, <laughs> I think uh, Batu, who is the that her partner, the, the enormous cyborg with the electronic eyes. Yeah, I think he's in love with um, Major Kusanagi, but he's you know, too shy to do anything about it. And he's this kind of quiet, melancholic, rather shy, sort of blundering bloke who you can't bring himself to talk about his feelings. Mm-hmm. But I don't know whether that's something that I've utterly made up or whether you pick up that same undercurrent from watching the film. Well, they have so many scenes together that you you could, yeah, I could read it that way. Um, but again, without knowing whether or not they have attraction or feelings of love it'd be hard to say that for sure it gets a little creepy at the end because the only body he can find her right is a young girl's body <laughs> a child's um, body yes and even then it's it's pretty clear that she's sort of done with him she's off into the future um yeah will be merged with puppet master at that point so i don't think so i don't think so i didn't get that i mean they definitely spend a lot of time together they drink the beer together He's there. He sees her um, exposed many times. Um, but I never got a sense of anything romantic, no. Right. That's that's me reading what's not there. Well, at least this film has got a whole bunch of characters in it, um, I think. Let's play Who Am I and uh, and see whether there's anybody's, anybody's cyber body you want to put on. Let's play Who Am I. Okay. Okay. Who Am I? I know I said this last time. I can't. I can't remember who's going to go first again. I usually make you go first, don't I? Should I make you go first? Yeah, you should. Don, you go first. This is not going to take long. And <laughs> you I, want to be the dog, don't you? No. <laughs> <laughs> I had to think long and hard about this. First of all, the short answer, which probably isn't that short, I am no one of these characters. <laughs> um, but my maybe is there's this one guy who's running after the garbage truck and he's angry at them for not taking his trash. <laughs> That's totally me. I mean, I'm at odds with my my trash uh, collection people and my recycling people, so I, I feel that all the time. So that's who I am, and I, I couldn't. It's really hard for me to relate to these characters any in either film, but um, yeah, I couldn't think of anyone else. See, see, I watch this film, and and like the teenage boy in me still identifies with Batu, who is the yeah, the, the, the taciturn giant. Because yeah. obviously, inside my mind, I'm just like that guy. He's kind of <laughs> he's he's kind of like taciturnly but efficiently doing his job, isn't yeah. he? And he finds it quite hard to express what he wants. Yeah, yeah. But he's he's got the biggest gun of the whole group, and like I, <laughs> so pathetically, 
Uh, that's the guy that I come out of the yeah. cinema thinking, yeah, yeah, that's me. They got me down to a T there. Yeah. He even has bad eyesight like me. Really, we're almost <laughs> identical. Yeah, he definitely makes much of the fact that he does have a big gun. <laughs> well, sure. Hasn't been a hit with you. Neither of these films have been a hit with you. And I had a perfectly pleasant couple of afternoons sitting and watching these two <laughs> films of sci-fi nonsense. Let's see whether we can draw them together into a bit of a synthesis. Yeah. So, I mean, you cannot deny these two films share a lot in common. And I think not least because I, I reckon any science fiction film made after 1995 is going to share something with Ghost in the Shell because it's been so influential. Yeah. I think you know, uh, in the same way that when we watch The Matrix, you know, yeah. that, that drops so many references to this. And then so many films have stolen from The Matrix. The Ghost in the Shell feels a little bit like the uh, sort of cyberpunk sci-fi action them up yeah um, so it's it's whatever you may think of it its influence is everywhere and, and both of these films this week do feature kind of similar motifs that they have similar helicopters similar robots mm-hmm. similar decaying urban environments and you know and, and they have similar ideas that if you can't solve a problem with a gun the answer is go and get a bigger gun bigger that's gun. what both of, them, <laughs> both of them think yeah um, I'm glad you mentioned The Matrix because uh, the Wachowskis must have seen this before making it. You know, there's that look of the men in black, the glasses indoors at night. Yeah. Um, which I think would affect your ability to shoot accurately. And then that might explain why no bullets seem to ever hit anything. Um, the plugged in, being plugged into a network, a portal in the back of your neck. Um, that classic shot of running while being shot at and everything behind you is destroyed and you just sort of escape the you know, every nearest <laughs> bullet. Um, that's right in the Matrix. And, you know, Matrix is, what, four years after this. So um, it, it definitely, yeah, I mean, it could be a touchstone film in that sense that uh, it inspired and uh, enabled a lot of other uh, images and, and sequences in other films. Um, so I think it's probably influential in that way. Um for me, I think, you know, and I talked about it earlier, the, the sort of dehumanization of the future. The, the future does not look like a place where I want to live. Um, <laughs> and oh, we've it, only got six years. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think they do a pretty good job of that. Um, it's, you know, I don't know. It's probably realistic. It's not necessarily pessimistic that they, they paint these futures for us. But um, I think this idea that, yeah, the singularity is near or here, um, merging more and more humans with technology. I think that's definitely in both films. Um, and it doesn't look pretty. You know, honestly, it doesn't look pretty. I'd, I'd rather go up to Alaska and be eaten by grizzly bears than, <laughs> to quote a recent film, uh, than, than, than live through that, like live through a, a situation where Pandora, this massive um, alien uh, plant species, is either protector or destroyer or where we've got cyborg cops running around. Um, who could be hacked into by other cyborgs. So I think it's they both paint these very, very bleak uh, images of the future. There's, I, I, mean, I think they also kind of give a little bit of a uh, glimpse into the cultural differences between Japan and China. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not going to, I don't feel qualified to draw strong opinions like here, but, yeah. you know, Warriors of Future, I mean, like you were saying, it's it has a collectivist view of the world, doesn't it? 
the protagonists in that movie, they're prepared to press on with something that looks like a suicide mission yeah. you know, because they have the hope of saving thousands of people and that's what their moral compass is. Yeah. Whereas um, Ghost in the Shell is much more individualist, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's very... Ghost in the Shell is really jaded in its view of justice mm. and resolution. It's very noir, isn't it? Some yeah. people die, some people have to resign, nothing really changes, nothing is actually really tied up. Mm. Um, and... Um, you know, I says noir is like one of the one of the the, the traits of cyberpunk, isn't yeah. it? Those two kind of go hand in hand. Mm. But, but like the 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 Ghost in the Show has a much more f- personal journey, isn't it? So it's about one character's ex- existential crisis, yeah, and it pushes her to put her own goals and her own growth before that of her government or her department or her colleagues. It's one woman going for herself, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it asks so it asks these questions about what it means to be human. But you know that's and that's not a question that warriors of future has any interest in at all, isn't it? They're about you know, very very different things, yeah, very different worldviews. I think you're right. Ghost in the Shell has the advantage of really following a bit more clearly um, one protagonist, um, as opposed to the buddy cop scenario, I guess. Um, so I think that it works a little bit better than Warriors of, of Future. I think it's definitely the better film of these two. <laughs> That was qualified. Thank you. <laughs> I think for me, um, and I'm I'm the wrong audience for both of these films, so um, our listeners need to take uh, that and anything I say with a grain of salt because I'm not the person who should be watching or critiquing these films. Um, and I, one thing that I do sense is that these films both sort of have to operate on this certain level where the few, the viewer doesn't need to and certainly can't possibly understand everything that's happening. Um, because it sort of needs to impress us with imagery and this this story world that it's created. So I found like both films had lots of information that I didn't really need to enjoy them. And I think they both could have done a better job with much less exposition. The flashback scenes in uh, Warriors of the Future, totally unnecessary. Um, and then a lot of the dialogue in... I, I, was, I was amazed how talky um, Ghost in the Shell was. It just seemed like it didn't need to be talky at all. Um, so I think that they sort of operate on a level where we need to be impressed by what's happening visually um, and not necessarily and, and what's happening violently, I guess, and not be um, like too engaged with story. At least at least both of them. Um, I'm going to force you to admit this. At least both of them really commit to a like a, a fleshed out story world. Absolutely. And that's what I mean. Again, the one thing that animation or something that's totally cgi like if you if i'm in a video game basically which is how i felt in uh warriors of future it should be super imaginative you can do whatever the whatever the hell you want you some films go to the excess of a james cameron avatar for example just kind of giving too much imagination but yeah i think they can flesh out a story world and as i said that one sequence in ghost in the shell is just it's money in the bank i love that sequence um, but it's not worth waiting around, you know, hours for or watching two of the films to to get that, you know, three minutes. But that was a brilliant piece of filmmaking right there. Um, that's it. That's what's going on the box quote. Brilliant piece of filmmaking. That's it. <laughs> exactly. Right. Quotation taken completely out of context. <laughs> sell it. Sell we, it. Ha- we have just got time to talk about also playing at this theater. Um, I'm going to go first this week, please. Um, weirdly, only because um, because I know that I have actually seen some other films this week. <laughs> tell you what, I I watched I watched um, Ghost in the Shell two, 
Uh, I watched it straight after watching Ghost in the Shell. So I've got both of those films on my shelf. Wow. Um, And I haven't watched the sequel, which was originally, um, it went out just under the title of Innocence. Yeah. Um, And then distributors, I think for the West, had to put Ghost in the Shell 2 colon Innocence uh, on the film to try and sell it overseas. Um, I haven't watched that for about 15 years or so. No, it can't be that long, 13 years. I think I watched it shortly after it came out. Mm. Yeah. and uh, a little bit apprehensive going back to see that. But actually, I enjoyed Ghost in the Shell 2 just as much as the first oh, film. I think yeah. it's a terrific piece of filmmaking. I'm sure you would hate it just as much. <laughs> um, interestingly, it's a film which is a sequel to the first film, and it barely features Major Kusanagi at all. Oh. Hmm. Um, so I, a lot of interesting story choices. Um, again, fleshes out the world. Um, it's very noir. It's a buddy cop movie uses some characters for the first movie some new characters explore some very interesting ideas yeah um you know, really enjoyed it uh so anybody listening to the pod who did enjoy ghost in the shell yeah do not shy away from the sequel it's well worth your attention um, the other movie we watched this week uh, very similar to ghost in the shell we watched diary of a wimpy kid dog days mm. it's a bit of a dog <laughs> theme to this week's pod isn't there dogs all over uh so when my daughter goes away on scout camp there's just uh rachel and i and my son so uh, we like to we're working our way through the diary of a wimpy kid movies and they're easy to watch good family entertainment i guffawed out loud several uh, times um yeah it's did just what i wanted so yeah enjoyed it more than i was expecting to how many films are there i think there's like five or six mm. i think there's a lot wow hmm. well i didn't have time to see another film um <laughs> our listeners should know that we we've only had one week between the two um pods and uh i was just able to get in the two films that we were scheduled to do but i did and i was going to go see the original diabolique last night which is a oh, fr- wow. 1955 french film i think but, um which was remade as so many are um but i was i was listening more to podcasts this past week in part because we're going to talk about artificial intelligence i think in the future and there were yeah. so many good pods on ai in the past week but the one that i really want to talk about is the the New York Times, the Daily Podcast, one day last week, talked mm. to A.O. Scott, who's the, um, I guess he's like the, the principal movie critic for the last 23 years, who is retiring. Mm. Well, actually, he's reassigning himself. He's going to be working on book reviews instead. So that means there's a vacancy. I'm sure it's already been filled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh God. Sure. I hadn't thought let's, of that. Let's send them an email tonight. We must. We must. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm going to have to leave this pod right now to send <laughs> off my CV. Yeah, right. Um, but they went into uh, a wonderful interview. They went into a lot of depth of some of the reasons why he's leaving film uh, criticism. And it was fascinating. And the franchise films came up. He said... Um, he did. Oh my God! I'm sorry about this, but he did name your buddies by name, the um, the Marvel Universe people. Um, he's <laughs> Those are re- my buddies. He's really afraid of uh, just this this franchise filmmaking um, structure that's coming uh, into uh, dominance, of course, and uh, the fact that they're kind of critique proof. He even mentioned one point that. Um, he had said something about one of the Marvel films that had Samuel Jackson in it, and Samuel L. Jackson tweeted something like, we've got to find A.O. Scott a new job. Um, <laughs> um, so he named, he, he outright said that he thinks franchise films are a big problem, which I do as well. Um, and he called them, 
IP films? Is that intellectual property? Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So these IP films are kind of really ruining things. Um, I, 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 all I'm going to counter is I think IP yeah. films, they have a place, but the place is not on every screen in every cinema. Yeah. And he's, yeah, that's what's dominating now. Um, he's mentioning that um, uh, the streaming and the algorithms are a problem. Like the streaming of films sort of eliminates urgency. I get his point on this, that there's there's no release time that's limited in theater. So you really have to go out and see it. And it becomes this community experience. He's th- yeah. He suggests that the audience is becoming more and more individualized. And then these algorithms like Netflix, you, you, uh, did you say that um, you saw a little bit in Warriors of Future that pointed you to... Ghost in the Shell sort of thing. So, I mean, like, algorithms are really directing a lot of um, viewing for those people who are less discerning, I guess. Um, so, you know, it's like mathematics is telling you what to watch and Netflix is telling you what to watch. Well, meanwhile, Netflix is actually producing a lot of shite. So how yeah. do you, can you trust them to really make your choices for you? So he had some great points. Um, I agreed entirely. Probably easier to watch a couple films a week than reading some books. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think he's made his life harder for himself, hasn't he? But maybe he could use Chat GPT to summarize the books for him. Ooh. <laughs> Thereby, yeah, reading reading his books in fifteen minutes. Are you foreshadowing future popcorn counters? Well, you must come you? to the popcorn counter and we'll I think we will talk about exactly that. <laughs> yeah. Um I'll tell you how we can um solve this problem of yeah. uh of uh, cinema no longer being the communal activity with a narrow window, which is we need to get everybody to watch the same films as us at the same time. Ooh. So watch along with the watch along with the two real cinema club. I think That's, is the answer. Absolutely. So what would they watch? What, what would the listeners watch next to stay up to date with us? So next next week, well, the world can sigh a big sigh of relief because you're choosing the films next week, not <laughs> me. We're going to do we're doing close, aren't we? Yes, uh, new European film. Yeah. And matching that with uh, Boys Don't Cry, which is probably 1999 or 2000, something. Oh, fantastic. I haven't seen that since it was first out. I loved it at the time. Really looking forward to seeing it again. The world has changed since Boys Don't Cry was out. Very interesting to see what it looks like today. Yeah. These are some timely choices, I think. So Close is a Dutch-French co-production, which did not, it did not win Best Foreign Film, I don't think, but it was nominated. And then Boys Don't Cry, of course, from 1999, sort of. I think it really brought Hillary, Hillary Swanks to the attention of all of cinema. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So what made a career, wasn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so uh, for a cinema experience that brings you into the community, watch those two. We will be back at the Popcorn Counter next week to talk about Chat GPT. And then because it's vacation season, it is. we have another Popcorn Counter the week after that when we're going to be talking about... Um, about VHS cassettes, the old days. Analog. So so come back and join us for those. And then we will see you for close in three weeks. Wow, that's a long way off, isn't it? Yeah, something like that. Um, Cool. Good pod. Yeah, very good pod. Good pod and also bad pod. It's it's a point of view thing, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, thank you. (laughs) We made a good pod out of, um, I was generous, (laughs) mediocre film. In my Um, opinion. But thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye.